It is a gracious thing, our Father, that you have revealed yourself to us. How many times do the scriptures say something like, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the God of Israel. It is your declaration of your will. It is your declaration of your grace towards us. For every time you speak to open your mouth, you reveal something of yourself to us. And that is always for our good. We are always helped, encouraged, strengthened, corrected, challenged, exhorted when we hear from your word. Even when the words are, as it were, hard, corrective, disciplinary, they're always for our good. They're a blessing to us. And so we open this book anticipating, loving, praying for transformation that comes from this book. Would you do that this morning? So much of our worship is pointed to this book. Reading scripture, singing hymns and songs that reflect the truth of this word, and then giving extended time in hearing the word proclaimed. It's because we understand that our only hope is that you would speak through this word and that we would be changed by it. So would you do that? Would you give me clarity? Would you give me accuracy? And would you give all of us hearts to hear what needs to be heard this morning? And as we hear, that we would genuinely hear and that our lives would reflect that we have heard by the transformation that takes place. We thank you, Father, for this privilege. And we pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever noticed how many times in a given week and in your life you are given warnings? Some of my favorite warnings. On a coffee coffee cup, caution, contents hot. Well, I hope so. I mean, it is coffee. I hope so. Or what about this one? On a Dremel Pro Tool. Quote, this product not intended for use as a dental drill or in medical applications. Serious personal injury may result. <laughs> yeah? Or on Rowenta irons. Do not iron clothes on body. Never had that temptation. On Frankel's costumes, particularly their Superman costume, warning, this costume does not enable flight or super strength. On an early version of the Apple iPod shuffle, 
Number two, do not eat iPod Shuffle. Okay. On multiple chainsaws, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Good counsel. Or my favorite. Blades are extremely sharp. Safety goggles recommended on a letter opener. I didn't realize how close to the edge I'd been living all my life. Never having used safety goggles with a letter opener. I've actually even used a knife to open a letter opener with or a letter without goggles. Oh, isn't that great? Uh, these abound on the internet. Oh, we're given so many warnings. And you, you look at those and you go, is, is, it, is somebody really saying that seriously? And we are so prone to ignore them because of that, aren't we? In fact, a paper in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago addressed that very issue. They, they talked about the origin of where all of the warnings that come from on products originated and then how it progressed. Apparently, 1927, the federal government uh, passed the Federal Caustic Poison Act that basically said you've got to put a warning label on all poisons. Well, that's helpful when a poison is marked as a poison. And then by 1938, uh, warning labels and safety labels became required for all food and drug items. And by the 1980s, just about everything had warning labels on it, seemingly, so that everything has warnings. But the problem with the warnings is they don't, they don't distinguish between possible problems and realistic problems and concerns. And so the paper concludes and says, people's eyes glaze over when they look at a warning. They simply don't read it at all. Isn't that true? We just don't care. I suppose that's okay if you're using a letter opener and you don't wear safety goggles. But there are other warnings that really are critical. And I think sometimes our eyes tend to glaze over those as well and we don't pay attention. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we're tempted to approach it in the same way that we approach some of the warnings that we find in other places as well. <laughs> it's just another warning. Don't worry about it. Just, just keep going. But biblical warnings are never overstated. They're always legitimate. They're always realistic. They're always given because there is a genuine problem or the risk of a genuine problem. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is addressing in the latter part of Romans chapter 14 and the use of our liberties. In the first part of the chapter, he has been talking to both the weak and the strong. So the weak are those whose consciences don't allow them to partake of things that they have been given liberty to partake of. We're not talking about sin issues here. We're never given liberty to engage in sin. But there are some things that, that are discretionary. So what kind of meat can you eat? Is it acceptable to eat pork? What day do you worship on? Do you have to keep all of the feasts from the Old Testament? What kind of clothing do you wear? Do you keep all those laws from the Old Testament? as a means of expressing your delight in Jesus Christ, or have you been freed from those things and not have to do them? So if you have a weak conscience, you say, I want to still keep doing that. That's acceptable. If you have a strong conscience, you say, God's liberated from us from that. 
We don't have to do those things and it is not sin not to do those things. But how do the strong and the weak relate to one another? That's really where the rub is. And so the Apostle Paul in the first part of the chapter has given admonition to both strong and weak. He's given instruction about the kinds of things we ought to be thinking about as we're making decisions. Can I do this or should I refrain? And now in verse 13, he turns and he gives a number of warnings. And initially he had been talking to both strong and weak. And now it's really clear he's addressing only the strong. For if you have a liberty to do something, there are warnings explicitly attached to that that Paul identifies that we need to be aware of. And so in this passage, the apostle is going to continue the same theme that we've been talking about for a number of weeks. Use your individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. We ought to be thinking as we're using our liberties and as we're thinking about whether to refrain from using our liberties, we ought to be thinking preeminently about the unity of the flock. And here in these verses, starting in verse 13, going through verse 18, Paul is going to give four warnings to the strong about the use of their liberties. Four warnings. The use of our liberties can provoke a variety of wrong consequences. Paul wants us to enjoy our liberty. It's just that. It's a liberty. It's a freedom. We can enjoy them. We should enjoy those things, but only enjoy them with their intended consequences and their intended results. So he offers four warnings, verses 13 to 18. The first of them is in verses 13 and 14. Do not let the use of your liberty provoke others to stumble. Don't let your use of liberty provoke others to stumble. In verse 12, Paul made a conclusion that was appropriate to both strong and the weak. And he says, so then each one of us, whether you're strong or weak, will give an account of himself to God. So everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of God, the bema of God, and have to give an accounting for everything that he has done in his biblical spiritual life. And God will reward accordingly. He continues that into verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge anyone anymore. Or let us not judge, rather, one another anymore. It seems clear that the apostle is indicating that already judgment was taking place. Do you notice what he says? Let's not do this anymore. In other words, judgment was happening. There were those who were weak who were judging the strong and those who were judged, those who were strong who were standing in judgment of those who were weak. Why can't you just exercise your liberty? It's a freedom. Just, just exercise it. And then the weak saying something like, why are you such a libertine? Why are you not taking seriously your faith? Both of them criticizing, both of them evaluating. And notice the Apostle Paul puts himself in that category as well. Let us not judge one another anymore. So it's a temptation for everyone, and and the Apostle Paul included. It's so easy to be judgmental and critical of others that make different decisions from us. 
Why wouldn't they eat bacon? Why won't they mow the lawn on Sunday afternoon? Why won't they go to a movie? Why, why won't they take that vacation? I remember standing many years ago, standing at the front door after worship service, talking to a brother, and he just kind of looking outside and then turning to me and saying, how is it that so many people can spend so much money on a car? Same issue. It's wrong. It's sinful, he thinks, to spend a certain amount of money on a car. This is not the first time that the Apostle Paul has exhorted them not to judge one another. Verse 3, who are you? Or excuse me, verse verse 3, I was reading verse 4. Um, verse 3 says, we're not to regard the one who eats, is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat. The one who doesn't eat is not to judge the one who eats. Verse 4, who are you to judge? Judgment's going both ways. Who left you? As the ultimate judge and then as the jury. We're prone to criticism. Verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? It goes both ways. Strong to weak, weak to strong. The temptation is there for both of us. Why why do you do that? And Paul's exhortation just could not be more simple, could it? Stop it. Stop. Don't, don't do that anymore. Let's make a, let's make a conscious decision. We're not going there. Everyone's going to make their own decision about what they do. And we're not criticizing. And we're going to come alongside and we're going to help. And we're going to affirm. And we're going to build up those who are making different decisions from us. And then he, then he changes tone. In the middle of verse 13. But rather determine this. And that word determine is actually the same word that he's been using. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 10. It's the word judge. So let's not judge one another, but rather judge this. So the apostle is saying, don't judge others, but do judge something. Evaluate something. Determined to do something in a particular way. And now he is saying, don't look outside, look inside. He's directing the command, don't, don't think about what others are doing, but think about what you yourself are doing. Let's judge this, let's evaluate this. Am I, am I doing this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way? If you're going to judge, you evaluate this. Have I caused someone else to sin against their conscience by what I have been doing? The words obstacle and stumbling block are probably essentially synonymous. They're things that cause people to trip and fall. Remember the when uh, a few weeks ago we still had the PowerPoint projectors on the floor and the cables. And I knew the cables were there. And I saw the cables. And at times I even told myself, Terry, pick up your feet. And I still tripped over them. That's why we got them off the floor. They were the keep Terry from tripping and falling on his face plan. Let's get him off the floor. 
That's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. There, there are things that are put in people's lives that cause them to fall, to stumble, to faceplant. And the sense is, from what he says, that we're putting them there intentionally. Notice what he says, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Don't put it there. Well, if I put something somewhere, I'm putting it there with a purpose and an intent. Am I not? And Paul's saying, don't do that. In fact, if there's a nuance, and I'm not sure that there is, but if there's a nuance between the words obstacle and stumbling block, the word stumbling block has the idea, it's used in certain contexts of a trap. So we're trying to catch something. And it could be that the apostle is reinforcing this idea. Don't try and trap somebody and ensnare them in something. And notice again that he talks about a brother, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. When we're not careful with what we do and somebody stumbles and sins against their conscience, it's the brother. It's not just somebody out there, somebody who lives in Granbury, or somebody who lives in Texas, or an American. It's our brother. It's not just an acquaintance, it's our intimate friend. The person that we've been put in fellowship and union with Christ with. That's the one that we're sinning against. It's the exact opposite of what the apostles talked about in chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. We've just, we've forgotten to love. Now the question is, as you read this, how can Paul say we're intentionally causing others to fall and stumble into sin? We're just, it's just my liberty. I mean, it's just bacon, Terry. It's just, it's, it's just a fabric that's made out of multiple kinds of elements. It's not all a single woven piece, like it's not all 100% cotton. It's got a little polyester in it, so I don't have to iron it. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is given to us in verse 14. I know... And I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And, and with that statement, I think Paul is attaching himself to those who are strong. In fact, in verse 15, he does so, or 15.1, he does so clearly. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So 15.1, he clearly is saying, I'm among those who has practiced liberties. And with this statement in verse 14, I think he's intimating the very same thing. I'm I'm among those who are strong. I know there's nothing unclean in and of itself. What does he mean by unclean? Well, the Old Testament identified a variety of foods that if one would eat them would render them ceremonially unclean. And it wasn't just foods. It was a variety of other things, fabrics and a number of other practices as well. There was nothing, hear this, there was nothing inherent in the food 
that was sinful. So it was not like an act of adultery where the act itself is sinful. I mean, look at a cow and look at a pig. I mean, can you say one is sinful and one is not? No, I mean, it's just it's an animal. There's nothing inherently sinful within that animal. So why does, why does the Old Testament say some things are unclean and some things are clean? Because an animal is an animal. What's the difference? Two reasons. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20. And in Leviticus chapter 20, Moses is giving a variety of commands related to the conduct of the Israelites. Some of them we would call moral commands. They govern relationships between husband and wife and relationships that are inappropriate outside those outside that relationship of husband and wife and then other things are simpler and he's going to allude to that in that section Leviticus 20 verse 22 therefore you are to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I'm bringing you to live will not spew you out. Watch this, verse 23. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, watch this, who has separated you from the peoples. So you are coming to get a land that has belonged to someone else, but I'm covenanting it to you. But they are rebellious against me and they have done all kinds of sinful things against me. And when you come into that land, I don't want you to take up the practices that they have practiced. I don't want you to fall into the same habits. I want you, verse 24, to be separate from them. Holy. Distinct. You're not like the nations. Now watch... How he connects that. So it's obvious as he thinks about sexual morality. It's obvious the kinds of things he would talk about. And he has talked about those things. But now, now watch what he says in verse 25. He has just, separate, just said, I want you to be separate from the peoples. Verse 25. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean. Between the unclean bird and the clean you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. He says, I'm giving you some dietary practices just to demonstrate you're different. It's not that the bird is sinful. But I want the nations to see when people follow God, they act differently. Everything about them changes. What they wear, what they eat, where they go, what they do. 
It all changes. And then verse 26, thus you are to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and I've set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So why why does God say this is clean, this is unclean? To separate out his people from those who are around them. To make distinction. That's one reason. A second reason is that the ritual cleansing that has to happen externally when someone eats something that is unclean or is exposed to something that is unclean, like being exposed to a leprous person. The ritual cleansing to make them clean, to come back into worship in an appropriate way, reminds them that their hearts also need to be clean. And we saw this in the beginning part of Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So so he sets up clean and unclean to remind them that as they are doing things physically, to make themselves clean, to be acceptable to go back into worship, they also need something that goes deeper than just physical washing of the hands. They need a spiritual cleansing. Now, when Christ comes, He changes that. Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law, what no one else could ever do in relation to keeping the Old Testament law. Christ did. He kept it all Perfectly. And so in Mark chapter 7, he calls the crowd around him, verse 14, and says to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are which, that which defile him. So Jesus says in Mark 7, 14 and 15, it's not the outward stuff that makes us unclean. It's the inward stuff that makes us unclean. Verse 19, the outside stuff does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. And it's eliminated. Parentheses. Thus, he declared all foods clean. You can eat it all. There's no more ritual defilement. We can eat whatever we want. We're not bound by those Old Testament laws. That gets reiterated to Peter in Acts chapter 10. You're familiar with that. The sheet comes down from heaven with all the different animals. And Peter is allowed to eat from any of it. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we can eat anything if we eat with gratitude. So Paul is affirming all that stuff when he comes to chapter 14, verse 14. He says, I know that there's nothing unclean in the Lord Jesus. My understanding of what the Lord Jesus has taught, my fellowship with the Lord Jesus, my walk with him. I understand there's nothing unclean. We can eat anything. And I think at that point, All those who like bacon are saying, that's right, Paul, tell them. You go, Paul. 
And then he inserts a contrasting statement. Nothing's unclean, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, it is unclean. If their evaluation of the liberty is to say, it's going to make me unclean. It's going to put me out of fellowship with God. I can't do it. My conscience is telling me it's wrong. If that's the situation, then notice what Paul says. If he thinks that, then it is unclean. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong, right? It's not a genuine sin. But if a, if a person says, I just can't do it, then don't do it. Because your conscience is telling you you don't have freedom. And you never want to sin against your conscience. You never want to train, your conscience, train yourself to ignore your conscience. You never want to get to the place where you say... Oh, I hear that voice in my head. Forget it. It's okay. When your conscience is inhibiting you, don't eat. And here's what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14. When we eat, and our conscience says, it's freedom, eat. And we eat. But we know that our brother is watching us And our brother is going to be tempted to do what we do when his conscience hasn't given him freedom to do that. We have taken that box and put it in the middle of his pathway. And we've said, hope you trip over it, brother. You need to learn a lesson. Paul says that's off limits. Don't do that. We're using our liberty in that case... To intentionally lead others to sin. And not just others. Our brothers. Our brothers. And we may not say. Literally. I hope they sin against their conscience. But the fact that we don't even. We don't even think about them. Indicates we don't care. And the fact that we don't care means that we're intentionally sinning against them. We we are intentionally not being attentive to their needs. We're only concerned about ourselves, what we want, what we get. And that leads to a second problem. Do not let the use of your liberty provoke you to be unloving. Verse 15, if we flaunt our liberties without considering others, there are two outcomes. That are dangerous. If because of food. Your brother is hurt. In other words if you eat. Your brother sees you eat. He follows suit. Even though his conscience tells him don't do it. Your brother is hurt. The word hurt. Obviously. It's a word about pain. But it's internal pain. It's internal sadness. It's grief. It's distress. It's the same word that's used in John twenty-one seventeen when Jesus is questioning Peter at breakfast. Peter, do you love me? And it says Peter is grieved. It's this word, 
Peter feels the weight of what he had done against his Savior. So that now his Savior is questioning him. Do you love me? And you just feel that brokenness. That's this word. You've grieved your brother. It's way more than just an annoyance and a petty trouble. And it's even worse than that. Middle of verse 15. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. We destroy them if we're not careful. The word destroy is a word that usually is used about um, eternal destruction, condemnation in hell. I don't think that that's what the apostle is talking about here for a couple of reasons. One, verse 15, again, he's called him his brother. So all through this passage, verse 10, verse 13, verse 15, Brother, 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 brother. He's the brother. End of verse 15. It's one for whom Christ died. In other words, Christ's death was efficacious for him. So I think he's in the faith. But Paul uses that word destroyed that's usually used about eternal condemnation to make the point. When we exercise our liberties and others follow those liberties and sin against their consciences... We are doing massive spiritual damage to them. They are harmed spiritually in a significant way. I think from the text, one of the main things that they lose is what he talks about in verse 17. They lose righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. They lose the fruit of the Spirit. They they, they lose the things that the Spirit has come to give them. And they just flounder. Because of what we have done. He wants us to hear. When I am insistent on my rights. I have to have my liberty. Of the potential to really harm others. I assume that's hard for all people. It's really hard for Americans isn't it? I mean we're, we're built on. Give me liberty or give me death. If I can't have my liberty, kill me. And Paul says, there's something worse than dying for lack of liberty, and that's killing someone for the exercise of liberty. That's one outcome. There's another outcome that he indicates in verse 15, and that is the impact that it has on us when we exercise our liberties to the detriment of others. If because of your food, because of food, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. You had been living in love. You had been loving others. You had been caring for others, but that's no longer the case. You no longer love. Loving others in the body of Christ is central to what we are. That's just been all through this passage, starting in chapter 12, hasn't it? Chapter 12, 13, 14, it's all about we're caring for one another. And watch what the apostle does. 
you're not loving, verse 15, the one who is destroyed, the one for whom Christ died. Now think about that. The second person of the Trinity is eternally in glory, enjoying fellowship with the Father. And one day, he said, I'm laying aside all of the privileges of heaven and I'm going to take on the mantle of manhood and all of the restrictions that come with manhood. And I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to live a perfect and righteous life so that I can be rejected by men, crucified on a cross, bearing the weight of all the sin of all those who would ever trust in me, absorbing the wrath from my beloved Father so that I can redeem sinners. He did that for the weak person. And I can't give up my liberty. How can we destroy the very one whom Christ died to redeem? Remember chapter 5? We were still helpless. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is, this is a practical application of that theological truth. Christ died as an expression of His love. And if Christ died for the expression of His love, we can give up a liberty as an expression of of our love. This is one of the things that has marked our body, and I'm so grateful. This, this, is, this is what our church body has always been known as. It's been known as a place that loves others, cares for others, goes out of the way for others. And I'm so thankful. And when I say this, I am not thinking of anything in particular. I'm not thinking of any situation. I'm not thinking of any person. I know of nothing where this is being violated. But the warning is in the text, and I think we need to heed it. Just be careful. Because of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I think this, this, this could say Grace Bible Church chapter 4 verse 9. 1 Thess 4 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Look, I don't, I don't need to tell you to love. You love well. That could be Grace Bible Church 4.9. And then verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. Oh, we do this well. Let's excel still more. Well, let's just watch. Is there somebody who's watching me practice my liberty and am I unintentionally leading him to sin? And if so, 
I just want to avoid those things. Third warning. Do not let your use of liberty provoke others to speak evil of the gospel. Verse 16. Do not let what is for you a good thing. It's a good thing. What, what, what good thing is he talking about? I think he's talking about the exercise of liberties. It's, it's good. It's good to be free from the bondage of the things that the law placed over us. It's good to be able to eat a variety of foods. We like those things. I mostly like 100% cotton, but hey, I can tolerate a little polyester. It's, it's advantageous. It saves a little bit of time at the ironing board. I'm all in on that. I like the freedom to not have to keep the Old Testament law and all the feasts that they did. So it's good. But be careful, he says, that it not be spoken of as evil. We can tempt others by the exercise of our freedom to speak evil about it. Speak evil evil of what? Speak evil, perhaps, of the exercise of our liberties. But I think he's actually talking about something else beyond that. I think he's talking about the gospel. The word evil is actually the word blaspheme. Don't let them blaspheme what's for you a good thing. How do I practice my liberty? How do I get to the place where I can practice my liberties? Well, I trust in Jesus Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. I'm freed from the bondage of the law. Now I can do all the things that are that were restricted in the Old Testament that aren't sin. I get to do those things. That's, that's a good thing. But what gets me there is the gospel. And I think what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verse 16 is there are going to be people that watch you exercise your liberty and your freedom and they see somebody coming alongside you, crater, spiritually. And they're standing outside and they're watching and they're saying, is that what the gospel's for? Count me out. If that's what Jesus does, if that's how people treat one another after the gospel, I'm out. I don't want anything to do about it. If that's what the gospel does, that the gospel's worthless. And that's blasphemy. So Paul is just warning us, be careful. Don't, don't use your liberty in such a way that people will be led into sin. And as they're led into sin, that others outside the church are going to watch and they're going to blaspheme the gospel because, of they, because they see how you treat one another. There's a fourth warning. Do not let your use of liberty provoke you to forget gospel purposes. Notice verse 17. Don't let what's a good thing be spoken of as evil. Why? Because for... The kingdom of God. And when he says the kingdom of God, I think often the word kingdom of God, the phrase kingdom of God refers to the literal millennial kingdom, the time when Jesus will come and reign on the Davidic throne for a thousand years. I think that's generally how it's used. And that's a possibility here, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about something much more general. To be in the kingdom, to have Christ as your king, And I say that because of what he says in verse 16. For he who in this way serves Christ. So Christ is my master. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my king. 
I'm following him in his realm and under his authority. And that realm, that, let's just call it, that Christian life, that following Christ life, verse 17, notice, is not eating and drinking. So, Christ died, and part of the overflow of the benefits of we receive is we're freed from the bondage of the law. Praise God. And I mean that with all sincerity. It's not binding on us. But that's not front and center of why He died. Why He brought you in. Why He brought you in was, notice verse 17, the contrast, not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in, in the realm of, out of the overflow of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What does that phrase sound like? Sounds like fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, doesn't it? I think that's what's going on here. He's just given us the shorthand version of Galatians 5. He says, you ought to be transformed into the likeness of Christ expressing the fruit of the Spirit. That's why Christ died, to change you, to transform you. And when you're transformed in that way, notice verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ to benefits is acceptable to God and approved by men. You can satisfy God. You can be pleasing to God. You can be a delight to Him. We've seen that repeatedly through this book. And you can be approved by men. So those, verse 16, who stood outside watching what you were doing when you weren't careful and blasphemed, instead of blaspheming when they see you treat others with love and grace, they approve. That's the way it ought to be. That's what a Christian ought to do. And they're drawn to believe in Jesus Christ. This verse is a reminder that we need to think about what others think about what we do. Our actions and our attitudes matter to God and they matter as a testimony to the world. And we don't ever want to be an impediment to others trusting in Christ we're following Christ. We have a propensity for, for ignoring warnings, don't we? That's ridiculous. That makes no sense. Of course the coffee's hot. Of course I'm going to hold the chainsaw by the handle. We ignore them. We dare not ignore these warnings. If we ignore these, that Christ has put us on high alert for, there are three potential harmful outcomes. That those who are weak, their consciences will be defiled. They'll be led to sin against their consciences. Will be proven to be unloving. And the gospel of Christ will be mocked. It's not trite, is it? It's significant. You need to be careful. So use your liberty. Exercise your liberty. Oh, brother, you're free. But be so careful. 
as to how others are observing you and what they're doing as they're following you and make sure that you're not leading them to violate their own consciences. That's what it means to be loving in the body of Christ. Father, thank you for the admonition of these words. Correction, perhaps, for some of us. And just a good warning for all of us. You've given us good things to use and enjoy. But it's not ultimately about us. It's about how we can do those things. To nurture others, to care for others. And would you... Would you make us cognizant of how we are using our liberties and how others are responding to how we are using our liberties? And might we only do those things that will help our brothers to walk with you? And if we have to give up some things, might we do so joyfully and contentedly? Thank you, Father, for these truths. Thank you that they're founded on the reality that we are bonded together in Christ. Might we now, as we partake of the table, delight in the Christ who has died to make us brothers one with the other. We pray in his name. Amen.